Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 32. Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all, all your iniquities I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and in the waste shall be builded. The desolate land shall be tilled whereas they lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, this land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left around about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoke, spoken it, and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of the, by the house of Israel. To do this for them, I will increase them like, with men like a, like a flock, as the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feast, so shall the wasted cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. All right, so we've been going through this uh, chapter, and it's talking about God's punishment of Israel, the desolation, and then he's ending this with his blessings. And these blessings, I believe, have been started now and are, are going to be completed in the, by the millennial kingdom, and this is what we're going to see for the next couple of chapters is uh, this future. But in verse 32 it says, Not for your sake do I do these. Let it be known unto you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. So God says, I'm not blessing Israel because of what they've done. All right? And he still today is not blessing Israel for what they are doing following him because the majority of the population of Israel don't follow him. Uh, he's doing it simply because he promised Abraham that he would bless them. And then he further promised David that he would bless them. And that's why they're being blessed. Which is also why God sent his son to die for us as, as sinners, because not that we deserved it, because we didn't. Jesus died for us so that we, he would provide the way to come to the Father. And so he says, you know, be ashamed of your sin and be confounded or humiliated for your sin, O Israel. And this is something that he keeps in our forefront of our mind that we need to keep in mind. We don't have anything from God because we deserve it. And, you know, this is something that when you walk with God, sometimes you can forget that you don't deserve anything from God, you know. As you've walked with God for a long time, you, you've let him straighten out your life a little bit, your life's, life's been straightened out. A lot of times, Christians even get to this point where, you know, they'll start thinking, well, God's so lucky to have me. <laughs> you know, God, you're just so lucky to have me. I, I, I witness, I go to church, I do this, I do that. And, you know, God is going to say, you know, hey, look at your sin. You don't deserve any of this. It's my blessing and my grace that allows you to have anything. And this is what he says, I'm not doing this because of what you deserve. Matter of fact, if I gave you what you deserve, you wouldn't be a nation again ever. You know, if God gave us what we deserve as individuals, we wouldn't be going to heaven. That applies the same way to all the other, all the other nations too, right? Everybody. Everybody. He doesn't say that there. But. 
Well, God is their, God, Israel is God's chosen people, and that is true that they've chosen them. They are, in history, one of the only, if not the only nation that has ever been destroyed on multiple occasions and come back to live in their land and been, been a nation. Okay, Ezekiel's at a time when they're going to be judged for 70 years and taken out of their land and come back. Today's Israel was out of their land for close to 2,000 years before they came back. No. No, we're not. We don't have shame for sin, and as a whole, people do not have any shame or, or, uh, humility because of their sin. Which is why, is when we share the gospel, the first thing we have to do is convince people that they are a sinner that deserves punishment, and for sometimes that's sometimes that's very hard to get them to understand. But the sad thing is, is when Christians forget that they're a sinner in need of grace. And I've met many people like that. Well, I've, I don't deserve this or, you know, or I do deserve this. You know, and then either extreme is bad because it's all by grace. If I, if I get too down on myself and forget about grace, I have a problem. If I get too up on myself and forget grace, I've got a problem. I've got to really keep in mind it's all God, everything. It's all his pleasure. It's all his grace that keeps me and gives me anything. You say we can get too full of ourselves as Christians. Because I might think that I'm too much of a sinner for God to want to bless me, or I could get so, well, God, you're so lucky to have me. I've cleaned up so much of my life and get too full of ourselves in that way. And either way, we're living in the flesh, in a fleshly attitude and not a godly attitude. And you say that you've cleaned up sin if that is what you're focused on and think that you've done it, definitely. Because it's only God that does the work that does us any good anyway. Because that's what's important. What is God doing in our life? He's cleaning up our life. He's sanctifying us. But just as we've gone through this, it's him that does the work. Because our life, our life is cleaner because of the decisions we make. The only, thing, the only real decision, because I can clean my life up by, by my own effort, and Isaiah tells me that all my righteousness is filthy rags. Right, you can still go to hell even though you straighten up. Oh, you can straighten up almost everything in your life and still go to hell if you don't, go to, if you don't turn to Jesus. Or even as a Christian, I could get so full of myself on how, every, how I somehow have managed to clean up my life, which is, which is wrong because it's not me who's done it, if it's real, and end up way off becoming self-righteous usually. Or I could get so down on myself that, you know, God, God doesn't deserve, you know, I don't deserve any blessings from God at all. You know, and we would just want to walk in the, in the idea that it's his grace. He does it. Why? Because he's promised that, he, that he's going to care for us. Plain and simple. You know, why does he give us anything? Because Jesus died for us and so God can give us things by his grace. And all through this last last thing remember he says that I will do this I will uh, you know verse 26 that I will I will uh, put a new heart in you I will take out the heart of stone and put a new spirit in you and that's what we talked about last week it said that God says I am going to do all this I'm going to be the one that changes you I'm going to be the one that takes the heart of stone out I'm the one that's going to crucify your 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 bad behaviors and put in new behaviors and this is why we've got to be careful about what how we think you know you know because if, it, if I realize it's God who's doing everything, I have nothing to be proud of in myself. Because it's not me doing it. 
Now I let him do it. I let him crucify my flesh, and then I live in the new, new reaction. And this is what I've said. We don't do good things because we're trying to make brownie points with God. We do the right things because God has changed who we are, making us more like him, and then that results in us doing things. Verse 33, and the Lord, thus saith the Lord God, in that day I shall, that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquity, I will cause you to dwell in the cities and the wasted waste shall be built up. And here it goes, and God says, I will cleanse you. I will do the work. And this is God speaking. And then he says, when I, when I do that, you're going to dwell in the cities. You are going to be built up. The waste are going to be purified. And we are seeing this in Israel now. God put them back in their land, and we see them bringing the wasteland out and making it a fertile garden. And it is only going to keep getting better as God finally brings and clears out all their iniquity. Because right now, Israel has been placed in their land, but they are not following God. And they're not going to follow God until halfway through the tribulation period when the Antichrist stands up in the temple and says, I'm God, worship me. And then they realize that they have been tricked. And then something supernatural happens, and God says, you're my people. And he delivers them. And then all through the, the millennial kingdom, they will worship God, and Israel will be the center of all rule. But this whole section of Ezekiel has a multi-part fulfillment. And we see it over and over. He says, I'm going to put you in your land. Then I'm going to clean, cleanse you completely. And in the interim, Christians are getting that you know, aspect where we come to God. He cleanses us. He builds us up and gives us great blessing. But ultimately, the, the blessing is on Israel. You know? And this is why a lot of times you'll hear people talk about replacement theology. They'll tell you that the church has replaced Israel. There is no truth in that. Yes, Israel has been kind of put back on the back burner for now, and God is dealing with the Gentiles and the church. But when he takes the church out, the, Israel is his whole focus again, and Israel is his primary focus through the millennial kingdom. Uh, so we want to keep in mind, God made a promise to Israel, and he has never taken that promise away from them. Be never said we abuse it. Huh? We do, not, we do not replace them. Now, as the bride of Christ, we will have great blessing and everything, but we're not replacing Israel in God's eyes. No, because you cannot, because Paul tells us you, the Jew is not a Jew by birth, he's a Jew by a circumcised heart, a decision to follow God. Not every Jew is going to go to heaven. Not every Jew is going to be blessed. In this day, there will not be one. In heaven, there will not be one. But God has made promises to the Jewish people, whether they are, are a Jew following him or just a Jew by birth. He's made a promise to them as a people. And that's the promise he made to Abraham. Huh? Physical thing, yeah. That's earthly. Earthly. Doesn't mean they're going to heaven. It doesn't mean every Jew is going to go to heaven. Doesn't mean they're going to spend eternity with God. Uh, they have to make a decision, and that was what they're called, you know, if you think about what we've covered in the Pentateuch over and over again. This day, choose you who you will obey. This day, 
choose this day choose you know who are you going to follow uh, you know are you going to do these for a real attitude or are you just doing it because this is what we do and many Jews practice all the different feasts and everything because that is what they do there's no meaning behind it there's no no depth in it they'll practice the Passover because that was the deliverance from from Egypt with no spiritual significance whatsoever They'll practice tabernacles, which was a celebration of, or a reminder of their 40 years in the wilderness when they were intense and they won't think about how God delivered them through that. It's just a activity to do. Much as we in America practice Easter and Christmas for the, for the most people. They're just events. They know they're kind of tagged into God, but they don't have any real meaning to them and then Christians, you know, true believers go, this is the day that Jesus resurrected. I want to I wanna celebrate. This is the day we celebrate his birth, you know, uh, and make it a big deal. And this is what God's saying. You Jewish people, some of you are just Jews by name, and some of you have chosen to follow him. So... Many people, that is why they obey God, is so that they're, they're trying to earn heaven. They're not understanding what God says, that for by grace are you saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. And this is what I'm saying. Sometimes we as Christians get caught up in this. We start trying to work our way into heaven, even though we know, hopefully know, that it's only by grace. But, and it, it's human nature. Somehow I've got to do whatever it is to please God so that he'll be happier with me and, and bring me to heaven. And I've heard it over the years. I've heard it with Christians. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do the best I can so God will accept me. Well, it's only Jesus Christ that makes you acceptable. And we've got to be careful. And, that, and again, I'm, every time I say that, I've got to be careful. That doesn't mean we go out and we do as much sin as we can because, because we're, you know, it doesn't matter what we do. It, it matters the consequences of, of obedience are, are better. It's, you know, when we obey, there's greater, you know, greater reward or consequences that are, that are good for us. And as we become more like Christ, we will do more good things because that's who he's making us to be. But we're not doing it to try to earn our place with God. Now, Paul, of course, talks about rewards in heaven. What are those rewards? That's what we let God do through us because any of our works just are going to burn up. So it's what has God done? What, is, what, is, what, is it, what do we do that God is doing through us is what we're going to be rewarded for? And I've said this, you know, the way I like to say it is, you know, God's plan is perfect, is wonderful. He does the work and we get the rewards. Isn't that what we're all looking for, what the world's looking for anyway? You know, let me get a paycheck and let somebody else do the work. That's actually God's plan. Crucify our flesh, do all the work for us, and then reward us for letting him do the work. You know, so in essence, what the world is wanting is really what God is trying to get them to do, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They're trying to do it for just being lazy, and God says, I want to change you. You're going to do a lot of work, but I'm going to, it's going to be me giving you the strength to do it. And it's, again, this whole idea, as this chapter is very strong on, it's all God doing the work. And we've got to really understand that. I am in Christ. You know, and that's Paul's favorite saying in the Pauline epistles. We are in Christ. 
And if I'm hidden in Christ, he does the work. He crucifies my flesh and he lives out through me. Now, that's why I tell people living the Christian life, truly living the Christian life is the easiest thing in the world as long as we surrender and, and let God crucify our flesh. If you don't surrender and don't crucify your flesh, Christian life is a pain in the neck to live because you're trying to do it on your own strength. And we can't do it. We struggle, we fight, we, we have a hard time. We always feel like we're losing because we are losing because God's not going to let our flesh stand before him. But if we surrender and, and let him crucify us, it's a piece of cake to just walk with him. Huh? Well, same thing. Paul says we're in Christ. You know, we're in Christ Jesus. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness. We, and he indwells us or in, envelops us, however you want to look at it. But we are his. All right. Verse 34. The desolate land shall be tilled, whereas the, it lay desolate in the sight of all them that pass by. And they shall say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. And again, this is what we're starting to see in Israel. When the children of Israel, when the nation of Israel was reestablished in 48, that land was desolate. It was arid, swampland, you know, parts of our swamplands. Uh, nothing grew except for mosquitoes in the swampland. And the rest of it was dry or dry with no trees. Huh? <laughs> Israel. <laughs> but God has blessed them with a land right now that produces enough food to feed Europe and given them very much almost a Garden of Eden type atmosphere. People say all the time now you go there and you find everything growing in Israel. They, whatever they plant grows. <laughs> It was in the 40s, but it has become a very lush area. And I'm sure there's still desert, desert parts and, and everything, but God has given them a land that can produce food. What was it when, he, when they moved in? It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It had green, it had trees, it had everything. And when God took his people out, he said, I will make it to desolation, and it became a desolation. And since then, they have, they have worked on it. God's blessed it. And he's making it a place that is strongly producing food for them. They can support all their people. And they support most of the rest of the world in that part of the world. Uh, it is a, God is making this blessing. How does it completely look at, like Eden yet? I don't know. I've never been there personally. But it will be what it looks like during the millennial kingdom because when Jesus comes down on the second coming, his foot touches Mount Olive, it splits and a river runs back, runs and totally renews that entire area completely. And it'll be a Garden of Eden during the millennial, millennial kingdom and God will totally restore it. And this is what's coming in the future. But he's already starting the work today. Huh? They talk about that. To rule. 
he'll be, apparently he'll look like a human being because he's going to rule. We come back with him. And his foot touches Mount Olive and it, it breaks in half, splits in half, according to the scriptures, Zechariah. So great things are happening, and this is this whole section that we're getting into is looking. We're going to be looking more and more at the millennial kingdom as we get into it. So we're going to keep following through this. Verse thirty-six. Then the heathen that are left around about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that which is desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it. I will do it. God's promise. And this is something we really need to keep focus on. When God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And we've talked about this. The word of God is true. And wherever we read, if there's something that we, don't, that we have trouble understanding or comprehending, what we need to remember is the word of God is true. It doesn't really matter what I think about it. It doesn't matter what my experience is. It doesn't matter what, what history even tells me. If God says it, it's going to happen. And he says, I'm going to send my people back. And he has sent his people back. They're not fully, fully spiritual yet, but he sent his people back. He has started the process of making it like the Garden of Eden. And it's, the world is taking notice. Man's trying to get the credit. For well, right now, man's taking the credit. They'll, ta they'll take the credit rather than giving it to God. But God eventually will get all the credit because he's the one that's done it. Now, those of us who are spiritual know that it's God who's done what he's done. It's not the super intelligence of the Israeli people to, that have managed to do all this. It's God giving them great blessing. Because he could take the blessing away from them at any time, just as he has on many occasions, take their blessing away from them and made it desolate and taken, put them in the rest of the world. But right now, he says, you're my people. I'm protecting you. And he's so patient. You know, when we think about how patient God is, he put the Israelite people back in their land in the 48. They're still not worshiping him, and yet he hasn't kicked them out of their country. And he's being patient. And he does the same thing with us. And how many times do we do things that God should just take us home for, or at least punish, or at least punish us greatly, or, or, or at least punish us severely, and yet he doesn't? You know, God is so patient. He's, he's, he's really patient, you know, and we, we look at this. You know, people will talk about how, what an angry God he was in the Old Testament. You know, I see nothing but the patience of God until, he wears, until they wear it thin. Yeah. You know, walking around the desert for a year, you know, with the people, and then they decide, no, we're not going into the promised land because we don't trust you. So he says, fine, then you're not going in. You know, we'll let your children go in. You go wander in the desert for 40 years. And yet he protects them for 40 years in the, in the wilderness. He the water. Yeah, does everything for them. Well, yeah. Well, God protects and God deals with it. Uh, you know, they could have gone in with a lot less people than they did if he hadn't protected them completely, but he protected them and fed them and watered them. Three and a half million people wandering around in a desert being fed and watered every day. That's quite a, that's quite a, yeah, clothes and shoes that didn't wear out. But just the feeding of that many people every day for 40 years. And their animals. And, their, and animals. You know, that is a major undertaking. You know, if you don't 
don't really understand it, you know, go check out the military sometime, just trying to keep a, keep a corps or an army you know, fed and watered for, for every day. You know, it's, it's a big undertaking to, to, to deal with. It's a lot of, you know, it'd be major amounts of trucks and planes and, and helicopters for us to do it in our day, and God did it without any of that stuff. He just gave them food every day and you know, gave them a river of water from a rock. That apparently, from everything it looks like, that rock followed wherever they went. The rock with the river followed them, you know, and it's like, because everywhere they go, the rock's there. Uh, so I don't know how God did it. I, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of bizarre, but God took care of his people for 40 years. All through the book of Judges, the people kept going in cycles of sinning and being, being uh, put under bondage and then repenting and coming back. Uh, we see the northern kingdom, how patient God is with the northern kingdom because they're worshiping an idol from the time they start to the time they get into captivity with Assyria. And God spends hundreds of years with them trying to get them to turn to him. Now, in the southern kingdom, they go up and down depending on their, their king, but they then have a long series of kings that are wicked, and God finally judges them for it. God's patience. You know, and how repetitive is, you know, is he? You know, we read the word of God, and he keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again in each of the books. Each of the, each of the places, he keeps saying the same message over and over again. And it's all about how we deserve punishment, but that he loves us and that he cares for us and he delivers us and he blesses us. And if we do enough bad, he'll punish us. But you know, we see God's love and his patience through all of this. As long as we repent and turn back to him, he'll keep being as patient as, as he will be for us. And you know, I love the patience of God. I love the grace of God. I love his mercy. Because if I got what I deserved, I'd been in trouble a long time ago. Long time ago. I wouldn't have made it this far. And so we want to keep this in mind. God loves us. God has made promises to us. And we need to hold on to those promises. And as you're reading through the Bible, find those promises and say, God, what promises do you have for me? And start holding on to them. I've already shared to you, my, one of my greatest promises is Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. You know, and I look at that, and that's sometimes the only thing that will get me through a troublesome period is, God, I don't understand this, but you've promised that it's for my good. The other major one that I look at is, God, you are sovereign. You are absolutely in control, and nothing happens without you allowing it. And I have some other verses that are out there, but those two are my big ones. That way, no matter what comes my way, I know God has a plan, and I know it's for my good. And those ones I grab hold of. Now, everybody has their own verses that they look at, and they say, this is, this is the verse that I love. And whatever verse God gives you, grab hold of it. Use it the way God teaches you to use it. I love the fact that I'm saved by grace, not by works. Because my works would have gotten me in trouble a long time ago. And still in today would have gotten me in, get me in trouble. But he says, my grace is what, I, what you're going in. By grace, Noah found favor with God and was to, asked to build a, just a little, little, little boat. <laughs> You know, 450 feet long, no, no big deal. 75 feet wide, no, just, a, just a little thing. You know, to, to deliver. To deliver 
the animals in his family. You know, by grace. By grace, Abraham was called out of Ur of Chaldees to follow God. You know, we see this over and over again, how God calls his people. He gives them what they need. Because if you look at Abraham's life, he messed up a lot. <laughs> and yet God loved him, and he served God. He, he wanted to serve God, even though he messed up. And David had a lot of problems, and Solomon had a lot of problems, and Elisha had some problems, Elijah had some problems. All these guys had problems in their life, and God is not afraid to point them out to us. And the reason he points them out is so that we understand they're just like us. We make mistakes, God gives us grace, and he uses us to do great things in, in certain aspects of our life. And he doesn't turn away from us. He doesn't kick us out. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't say, well, you failed. Now you've got to spend 20 years proving to me that you want to be my child before I'm going to use you again. We repent. We turn back to him. And he says, okay, here we go. And he puts us right back where we fell from. And this is the good news about God. You know, he doesn't sit there. He's, you know, the prodigal son is a great example because when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, Everybody's nodding their head. Okay, the son's come back. The father's going to make him a servant just like he asked. And then Jesus said he took him back as a son. And that blew their mind. That blew their mind because that's not the way that story goes in, the, in, their, in their civilization. Their, their civilization would be if the father took him back. And that was a big if. The father would put him in as a slave, as a servant until he proved he was worthy of being a son. And Jesus said God's way is you come back, you've repented, he makes you that son and put you right back where you, in that position where you were at. And this is what we need to understand, because so many times when we fail, we will beat ourselves up for a long time if we're not careful. Because we'll go, God, I don't deserve, I don't deserve any blessings. God, I, I want to be your servant. And God's saying, well, you're my son, and we're trying to be a servant. Now, we're, going, we're out in the bunkhouse you know, with the servants, not in the house with the, with the family. We're trying to earn his pleasure instead of just being the child and we've got to be careful. We, we can get ourselves all wrapped up in this stuff and forget that it's all God doing the, doing the work and it's all his grace that we're even his in the first place. And this is why it's so important to keep these things in, in, in mind. Verse 37, Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do for them. I will increase them with men like a flock, as a holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem, in her solemn feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So again, God's saying, you know, very first he says, I will yet be inquired of them. Even though they're, sin they're sinning and everything, he goes, I am going to let them come into my presence and make their request. To me, one of the greatest things we have as a Christian is, the right to go before the throne of God and make our petitions to him. You know, and, and I've shared with you, I hope you understand how big a deal that is. You know, most of us couldn't even go and stand in front of the mayor of, the, of Kingman, much less the governor or the president, and yet we can go to the, the God of the universe and just walk into his presence and give our request to him. You know, and that's an amazing thought. To be able to go in and make, make an inquiry. And God says, You're, they're my people. I'm, I'm going to still be inquired of them. I want it. They can. And I want it. 
And he says, then I will increase them. I will make them plentiful. And he says, like a flock. You know, and we think about this, you know, if you have a flock, it doesn't take you too long to build that flock up. Because uh, each lamb will have multiple, multiple births in it, and it, it doesn't take long. And God says, I'm going to make the people fill this land just like the flock. He says, I'm going to make them abundant. They're going to fill this land. And this is what God told man from the very beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. And what is Satan's big attack in our day, in our day and age? Oh, we've got too many people. Don't, don't have any more births. We've got way too many people. God says one thing. Satan says another. And we want to be very careful about you know, this. What does God say? Listen to him. Because Satan is all full of attacks. You know, full of attacks, full of contradictions to God, uh, whatever God says. All right, we're going to start verse third, uh, chapter 37. <coughs> the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the, sp- in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of a valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass among them, round about them. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said unto me, Prophesy unto these bones, and say to them, O you dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinew upon you, and, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and a, behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And, then I, and when I beheld, lo, the sinews of flesh came upon them, and the skins covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then he said unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, pro- prophesy, son of man, and say unto the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon the slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came of into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet and were exceedingly great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of the graves and you shall and shall put my spirit in you and you shall live and you shall you shall place you in your and I shall place you in your own land and then you shall know that I am the Lord God that has spoken it and performed it saith the Lord the vision of the valley of the dry bones most people have heard this one this story before and this if you think about this it's a very interesting vision Ezekiel is taken out of his place in the spirit and put in a, in, a vo- in a valley with lots of bones. And it says they are dry bones. So what does that indicate? They've been dead for a long time. <laughs> they have been dead for a long time. And God says, can they live? This is what happened to Israel, as, as it says later on, it, God did this with Israel. Israel was dead for a long time. You know, 2,000 years, they did not have a nation, they did not have a place, and yet somehow they managed to keep some semblance of who they were. They kept themselves separate from the people, but they were dry. They didn't have a home. They were dry. They were, they were really dry spiritually. And God says, 
prophesy. And he says, as he prophesied, loud noise. You can picture what this would sound like. You know, thousands, millions, billions, who knows how many bones. I mean, there's a uh, hundred and something bones in each, each person's body. What is it? Several hundred bones in everybody's body anyway. Is that a song, Dead Bones? Dead Bones, Dry Bones, yep. But God says, all of a sudden, enough bones in here to make an army of people. Uh, it doesn't define how big an army is, but an army is several hundreds to thousands of people anyway. And if it's a really big army, it could be several hundreds of thousands of people. And all of a sudden, these bones start rattling and shaking and starting matching up to each other. That would be kind of an interesting thing to be seeing. Then he says, not only do the bones start attaching, all of a sudden, tendons start going, being attached. Yeah. You picture this. This would make a great Hollywood picture on a movie for them to do this, uh, this you know, show this the way it is, described. The bones all come together. Now the tendons start connecting the bones. Then he starts putting muscle on the bone. And then on top of the muscle goes the skin. And yet he says they're not alive because all he's done is fixed up the physical. All right? We know that this is Israel because he tells us that it's Israel. This is Israel in its day now where it's been put in its homeland. It's been made alive, theoretically. There's been flesh and bones put on them, on the bones put together, flesh put on their bones. But Israel right now is not alive as a, as a nation. <laughs> okay, there are righteous people. There are people trying to follow him. But as a nation, they, they are still without life. And... God tells him, okay, now prophesy to the wind. Wind, come and fill them. Spirit, come and fill them. And he says the four winds come together and they are made alive. And that it's an entire army that is put together. God is yet to put the spirit of life into Israel as a nation. Granted, again, we want to be careful anytime we say all because there's no such thing as all. There are righteous Jewish people, there are those following him, but as a nation, they do not follow, follow him. And as we said, they won't follow him until the middle of the tribulation when the Antichrist, who has helped build the temple, steps up in the temple and says, I'm God, worship me. And at that time, the people will, for whatever reason, get a spiritual awakening and realize this isn't God. There's only one God and we're to worship him and at that point they'll realize that they have been tricked. And then they will start looking for Jesus. And that is when in the Psalms it tells us that they will ask, you know, who, who gave you these wounds? And they'll say, these came from, from the house of my friend. In other words, you guys gave them to me. And they'll, they'll recognize Jesus for who he is. And when that will happen, sometime after the halfway through might be when he comes back at the at, at the end of the at the end of the tribulation period, and he comes back in victory, because then he comes back as the way they expect Messiah. But we're coming back with him. We'll be we'll, if you're a Christian, we'll be with him. We'll miss the worst of the worst of it. Now I think things will get bad before the tribulation starts, and God will test uh, test Christians, and we'll have to. Many of us may have to pay with our lives before that. But for the tribulation, no, we will miss out the tribulation. We will be in heaven, celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb, going through the bema seat judgment, 
and because we come back with him. Jesus rides the white horse and the, and the sword destroys the enemies and we ride behind him. And quite a, quite a battle will be that will be. Jesus speaks and the battle's over. <laughs> yeah, very, very simple, quick battle. Uh, Satan gathers the world together to fight, fight Jesus coming back and he just speaks and they die. And blood runs to the height of the horse's bridles, which is a lot of, a lot of blood. A lot of blood. But God says, Israel is going to be made my people. I'm going to start giving them life. And then he says, I'm going to give them life. And then they'll see God for who he is. And they will follow him. And again, it's God doing the work. The, the Valley of the Dry Bones is a picture of God doing the work for Israel. He puts them together. He, get, he puts the, the, the tendons and the flesh and the skin on them. He's the one that gives them the breath. You know, again, we've got to understand all of what God does is him. It's all him. So that's no different than like Adam. Huh? It's almost the same thing as Adam. Well, God took the dust of the ground and formed, formed Adam. Now, what, what exactly he did to form him doesn't say. It may be something like this. I don't know. But then he gave him breath and gave him life. And that's what he's going to do to Israel. And that's what he does to us as Christians. He gives us life. You know, he makes us a new creation. He gives us life. He gives us a spiritual uh, capacity to worship him and follow him. But again, this whole picture, what is it that God is doing? Everything. You know, and I know I'm harping on this, on this, but this is what this whole section, over and over again, it's saying God is doing everything. And the more we can fully understand that there's nothing we can do without God. There's nothing that we can be without him. We cannot do good things that are going to last without him. We cannot be spiritual without him. It's all him. And, the, and when we can learn that and just surrender to him, it's so important for us to be able to surrender to God. And said it over and over again, the hardest thing for us to do is surrender, but once you've surrendered, you get to the end of that sur you know, surrender and you look back and go, why did I make it so difficult? You know, we fight the surrender because the flesh does not want to surrender. We don't want to give up our right to do what we, want, what we think we want to do. You know, so we fight so hard against him. I've done it myself so many times, fought hard against him, and then got to the end of it and said, wow, this was so simple. Only... All I had to do was surrender, and he did all the work. And that's all he's wanting to do. Yeah. And, I, and I don't understand God at all in that aspect. He takes us sinful beings, crucifies our flesh, puts a spirit in us, and then rewards us by giving us the strength to be obedient to him. And all we got to do is surrender. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. All right, we're going to take this last little section because there's another, this chapter has two major points. Verse 15, and the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, you son of man, take you one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all of his house of Israel, his companions. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in your hand. And when the children of the people shall speak unto you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? 
You shall say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and they and make one stick of them, and they shall be one in my hand. And the sticks whereupon you write shall be in your hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, wherever they've gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and the king shall be a king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided among two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with their transgressions, but I will save them out of their dwelling place, wherein they show they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God, and David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my judgment and observe my statutes to do them, and they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, wherein their fathers have dwelt, and they that shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will put, place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. All right. One more picture that God is doing here. He's saying, I'm going to make one nation. He goes, you were two nations. And this happened after Solomon passed, passed away and his son took over and the nation split. And remember, two tribes went with the southern kingdom with David as their ruler. That was Judah. Ten tribes went to the, to the north and they're called Israel or Ephraim. There's lots of different names for them. In this case, he uses Ephraim in this list. Many different names that the northern kingdom has. And the northern kingdom always had evil kings and idol worship for, for the, from the beginning to the end. But God says, Ezekiel, take two sticks and then hold them together to picture being made one. And he's making a promise that when he brings them back together, they're going to be one nation again, which they are. They're one nation but they are not being ruled by God yet. And he says, I've made you one nation. And, you, and you know, he talks about that, that they shall have one king, there shall no more be two, two nations. He goes, uh, verse 23, neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols or their detestable things or their transgressions. They have not reached that point yet. That'll be starting in the millennial kingdom and then fulfilled in the new heaven and new earth. And it says, David will rule over them. And now, this one could be literally David as, as their king, or it could mean the son of David, Jesus Christ. And there's kind of a disagreement amongst theologians on whether this is Jesus or David will actually, because David was told, you will rule. But that could also mean through the way they think, all the way down through his descendants to Jesus. Either way, it doesn't matter, because Jesus is still going to be the ultimate king over everything. Huh? Yeah, it's, it's probably Jesus. Most likely it's Jesus who's ruling during this period of time as king. 
Jesus was a descendant of David, yes. Yes. Huh? And this is why a lot of theologians will tell you that David will rule over Israel and Jesus will rule over the rest of the world. I I am not going to make a big distinction one way or the other. Uh, It's only been in recent years that I've wondered if some of these theologians might be right that it's David who's going to rule over Israel. And that's... He's going to be raised from... They'll all be raised from the dead at that point. So... That's not a problem for God. Raising David to the dead is not a problem. Not so, huh? Not very good at that. Yeah, he's. It's one of those that doesn't matter. It's not a huge issue one way or the other. If it's David personally running Egypt, uh, Egypt, Israel, it's not a problem. If it's the son of David ruling the whole world. It's not a problem. We do know that Jesus will rule from Jerusalem as well, so that gives us kind of a, I kind of tend to believe that it's Jesus and that it's talking about the son of David, but I'm not going to take a hard stand on this because you're, you can hear both, both statements. Everybody's going to recognize him as a prince. They're going to all recognize who he is. So. But, and he also says they shall have one shepherd and who will walk in judgment and observe. You know, so there's lots of things that make me think that it's literally talking about Jesus here and not, not David. But I'm just telling you, you've got theologians who will tell you that it's David, and I'm not going to take a hard stance on that because you know, he's going to resurrect everybody, so it's not a big problem one way or the other. Uh, and David, David in the psalm said, My Lord said to my Lord, come and sit at my right hand. And... Uh, and that was made a big deal by Jesus. You know, if, if David said, my Lord, who is it that he's speaking of? You know, and that's what he was telling the scribes and the Pharisees when they were trying to say that, he, you know, the Messiah wouldn't be, wouldn't be a physical person after the you know, line of David. So he, again, not a big deal. I'm just bringing this up for you. So if you hear somebody say, David's going to rule, there's a, there's a line of people that believe that, and that's not the end of the world. And then he says, Moreover, I will make my covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an ever, everlasting covenant with them. And I, I will place them and multiply them, in my, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My tabernacle shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they will be my people. The heathen shall know that I, am, that I the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. And again, here we see that same thing. God will sanctify. Sanctify is to be made clean, made perfect. That is what's we, where we are in our walk with God. If you, if you are a Christian, you have been justified, declared perfect, and then we are being sanctified, being made perfect for the rest of our walk. And the moment that we're, we either die or we're raptured, we will be glorified where God will make us who he said we were in the beginning. All right? So, but he says, the heathen will see that he is making the people his and he sanctifies them and they'll know that he is God. And this is something that we as Christians need to make sure that we're even doing our part to tell the world God is doing these things. Have you ever been told, boy, you just have so much good luck or everything seems to work your way? You know, that's a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to share, you know what? I am so glad that God is in my life and that he's the one that works all these things out. They won't believe you, but that's okay. Give God the glory to those people when they say that. 
Say, this is what God, and I've told you, when I was in restaurant management, I used to love going in and go, you know what God did for me yesterday? And they're going, oh, you're going to give God the praise, you know, glory for something good that happened to you. And I'm going, yep, he, he's the one that does it. They didn't believe me. They didn't understand it. But, you know, they understood that I gave God the glory and had some impact on their life, I'm sure. So we want to be able to lift up God in front of the lost world so that they will understand God is doing something. God is doing something great. And we lift him up. We give him the glory. And we let others, even though they don't understand it. How do you, how do you, share, you, know, how do you tell people about Jesus? You go to the Bible and you give them Bible verses. Well, they don't believe it. It doesn't matter whether they believe it or not. We give them the word of God. It doesn't return void. And we share it with them. When we're witnessing, we, we use the scriptures to, to witness with them. And when people go, well, I don't believe it, you know, my answer is always the same. I know you don't believe it, but it is the truth, so here it is anyway. Yeah, I let them know that it's truth. Whether they want to believe it or not is not my problem. They need to hear truth. And we were talking before, you know, lies are always afraid of having the truth told. The truth is never afraid of lies. The truth will always win out in the long run because the truth will hold up to examination. A lie, the closer you examine it, the more it falls apart. And this is why don't ever be afraid of somebody giving you a lie. You, know, you don't have to believe it, but give them the truth. Because the more they examine it, the more they're going to see that it's true. We've talked about this. You know, there are many people that have gone out trying to disprove the Bible, trying to disprove God, trying to disprove Christianity. Well, if they're truly open-minded, they're going to end up becoming a Christian because the truth holds up to examination. The more you examine God's word, the more you examine the, the, the history of Jesus, the more you examine Christianity, the resurrection, the more you realize it is true. And so don't ever be worried about people saying, you know, well, I just don't know about this. Challenge them. Challenge them to go in and check it out. You know, they think they're really smart. Go, you know, and a good answer to them is, okay, you prove to me that it's not, not true. Go ahead, try to prove it. And as I've said, if somebody tells you, well, the Bible's full of contradictions, your answer is name one. And usually they'll get, well, I just know it's full of them. No, 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 just tell me one. You know, because there aren't any. There aren't any contradictions. There are some things that are very hard to understand. There are some that look like they might be contradictions, but they're not that hard to explain. And we just need to be ready to say, go and examine it. Go and look it over. Most Christians can't, unfortunately, because they don't study. Because we haven't studied to know what we believe. Titus tells us, study to show yourself approved, a workman that needs not be ashamed. We're told, be ready always to give an answer for what you believe. And there are so many Christians that don't know what they believe and don't know why they believe it. And believe me, I've heard them over the years. But you're getting so technical. I just believe it because I, you know, I, I have faith enough to believe it. I'm going, well, that may be good for you, but it's not good for most people. And it's not even being biblical. If you're telling me you believe only by faith, then you're not doing what the Bible says and studying to show that you are a workman that needs not be ashamed, a workman that knows how to handle the word of God. And it's very important that we get in and we study we get in and we do the study that it takes to know what we believe, why we believe. Because if you don't know what you believe and why you believe, you can be easily led astray. 
Because then you get these people teaching you things that they say are in the Bible, and if you don't know what it is you believe, then you, don't, you, you will not be able to defend yourself. When you get people that teach you that, you know, as, as the Judaizers did in Paul's day, Paul's message is really good, it's all by grace, but you've got to go do works on top of it. If you didn't know what you believe and why you believe, you're going, oh yeah, I've got to go do a lot of works. We've got to know what we believe, why we believe it. Whether it's right or wrong, really, doesn't. at least I know what I believe and why I believe what it is. And then maybe, maybe I'll learn later on that, oh, I was wrong in that area. And be able to, but again, we study it, and God will correct our bad doctrine. And all of us have bad doctrines in our mind. If you've been in the church any length of time, there's some bad doctrine in your mind, including myself. Every once in a while, God will show me something that I believe that's not quite true. and go, oh, I need to... I need to work on this. We will continually be learning, continually. And I believe we'll be learning all through heaven because that's the greatest thing that we have is to learn. And you know, we need to study. We need to be able to say, God, what is it that you're trying to do in my life? All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you go before us in our walk and our daily activities, that you show us what it is you would have us to do. And... Guide and lead us, Lord. Teach us to be obedient to you. Teach us to study and get to know you more. In your son's name, amen.